Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. You know that we say sometimes that misery loves company. I guess that's, you know, because we like to be reminded that, uh, you know, we may not be uh, the people who have it worst of all. Sometimes it's just uh, comforting to know that we're not the sole object of of, uh, whatever kind of turmoil uh, we might be facing. And maybe that's part of why Paul writes what he writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He is writing to comfort a group of Christians who had become kind of rattled in their thinking and and in their mind. They were fearful. They'd been upset, tremendously upset by a report that the day of the Lord had already come and passed them by. And far from being a comforting thought, you know, we talk about uh, looking to the Lord's return. Far from being a comforting thought, this idea frightened them, terrified them. Because they had been taught that the day of the Lord is not something that they were supposed to endure. It was a day of wrath and a day of judgment, a day of gloom and a day of sorrow. We looked at this a few weeks ago. In the Old Testament, just over and over again, the passages that talk about the day of the Lord, talk about it being a day of vengeance, being a day of despair, a day of, of horrors when God brings terror across the face of the earth. It's called a day of doom and a day of, a day of vengeance. Over and over again, the Old Testament pictures the day when the Lord would bring cataclysmic, universal judgment against the wicked. There were precursors along the way, the day of the Lord, which, which gave uh, an expression from time to time in various nations, but it was evident that it wasn't the final day of the Lord. Even as you work through the Old Testament prophets, it's evident that there's more to come. And certainly by the time you come to the New Testament, you continue to hear the New Testament authors write about the coming day of the Lord an ultimate day that is to come at the end of the age when God would judge all the nations, when He would strike the earth as He's done in the past, but this, this time in, in a much greater magnitude with famine and disease and wars and earthquakes and cataclysmic events, natural disasters and supernatural judgments. All of those things talked about throughout the Scripture on the day of the Lord. Well, these Thessalonians have been taught all those things. Paul had referenced it even back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, something he had taught them already. They learned about it as a day of wrath and a day of judgment that was coming. But they also had been taught very clearly that they were not destined for this wrath. That's what Paul says whenever he's teaching them in 1 Thessalonians 5 about the day of the Lord. He comes to verse 9, and he says to them, but God has not destined us for wrath. In fact, even here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he told them in verse 7 that because of the righteous justice of God, he has promised to grant them relief at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They weren't supposed to be plunged into greater gloom and greater sadness and greater persecution. They were supposed to be granted relief at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what they had been taught. This is what they had come to expect. That just as Paul said in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that when Christ returns, they would be gathered together to Him and so always be with the Lord. They were to comfort one another with these words. But now someone has written a letter to the church saying that, in fact, Jesus had already been revealed. He's already come. And they're living under the realization that if that happened, they had not been granted relief. As a matter of fact, they're still suffering intense persecution, intense suffering, and they were understandably shaken. People have struggled through the years to understand why this would be so confusing to the Thessalonians because throughout the age of the the church, particularly through the Roman Catholic Church, this idea formed that the end of the age would be an all-at-once moment, that it would last maybe a couple of hours, maybe a couple of days. And, And so people began to formulate this 
sort of simplistic idea about not only the day of the Lord, but the entire eschatology, the entire end of time, that everything just happens in a moment. And so they struggle to, to have a framework to even understand what's going on here in Second Thessalonians. But it becomes obvious that if Paul had taught them about the second coming being just a single event, all of it taking place just at a moment of time, then the deception of a false letter like they had received would have never gotten any kind of traction. It would have been so far outside the framework of anything they'd ever known, it would have never made any sense to them. They would have immediately recognized the false report because they would have immediately recognized that the world is still here, that the eternal state has not begun, that the return of Christ didn't immediately eliminate all sorrow and crying and tears and all evil was not defeated. But when you come to understand what the Scripture teaches about the day of the Lord, you come to understand what the Thessalonians had been taught, that really the end of the age is not a moment in time, but it's a span of time, a season. It's a period of years that were to unfold that really are summed up under this phrase, the day of the Lord. We looked at some of this last time. It's, it's a number of different events that take place that are initiated, first of all, by what Paul references in verse 1, by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. That's, that's sort of the initial event and a whole sequence of things then follow after that. But these Thessalonians, having been told that Christ had already returned, were under the frightful impression that they had not been gathered to Him and now the wrath that they were not supposed to be subject to, the relief that they were supposed to uh, receive had passed them over, and, and they were facing this wrath and this judgment that was coming on the face of the earth. And they were understandably shaken, understandably fearful, disturbed. So Paul writes all of this really to correct their understanding. But it's interesting, he doesn't do it in simple, just straightforward fashion. He doesn't just write them and say, by the way, that letter that you received is not from me. Uh, Move on to the next subject. He doesn't do that. Instead, he takes opportunity to give them an extended reminder of the things he had already taught them about what was to take place in the day of the Lord. Not because necessarily it was something that they were destined for. Not because it was something they were even supposed to look for. But maybe just as a reminder that no matter how bad things are for them right now, they're going to get a lot worse. Maybe no matter how bad their suffering and their persecution is right now, they could take at least a little comfort in the fact that there are worse days more miserable days that are coming on the face of the earth. Paul's essentially saying, I think, to them, you ain't seen nothing yet. He does this really with a a number of reminders of what he had already taught them, a number of of, uh, explanations that were intended not only to, uh, to correct the error that they had been fed, but also to provide them with a kind of hope an explanation, or really eight explanations, as I said a couple weeks ago, eight explanations that detail not only the source of their distress, uh, help us to understand why they would be so distressed. These explanations not only detail that source of distress, but they also move on to the source of hope at the end of the age that Paul had already taught them. Because as he reminds them of all these things. He weaves in there these these reminders as well of the Lord's ultimate sovereignty, His power, His victory over all of this evil that's going to uh, break out on the face of the earth. So last week we or the week, two weeks ago I should say, last, uh, last time we were together, we started to look at this passage and just 
just trying to get our heads around the distress of the Thessalonians. And we looked at it in verse, verses 1 and 2, that they had, they had become distressed. Paul says in verse 2, they were shaken in mind and alarmed by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. This is the, this is the basis of their, of their fright and basis of their confusion. And he wants to remind them that, that these are not the things he's taught them in the past and assure them that this is not a letter that's come from him. And so he really moves from that to verses 3 and 4, a second explanation, which is a, a description or a reminder of the Antichrist, a description of the Antichrist. And this really becomes the chief evidence to assure them that the day of the Lord has not arrived. And it, he does it really with two things. He, first of all, reminds them about the rebellion that is to come. And secondly, the man of lawlessness, which takes up the bulk of Paul's attention. He says in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? What Paul is doing here is essentially clarifying for them an order of events that he had already told them, he had already well instructed them about. And he, he says it all relates here to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord would not come without two other things initiating that day. A certain movement which would take place and a certain person who would appear. These two things which don't necessarily happen prior to the day of the Lord, but they happen at the beginning of the day of the Lord. That's probably the best way to understand this. It's very similar in the Greek construction, very similar to the way that, Paul, that uh, Jesus uses uh, the word first in uh, Matthew twelve twenty nine, when he says, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? then indeed he may plunder the house. So obviously you, you go into the house to plunder the house. The first thing you have to do is bind whoever the uh, owner of the house is. That's the first act of the plundering, right? Well, what Paul's saying here is essentially the same thing about this apostasy, this, this rebellion and this revealing of the man of lawlessness. They are the first events that mark the day of the Lord. And he's telling these Thessalonians that they hadn't missed the Lord's return or the rapture. They weren't in the day of the Lord because these two clear indications of the Lord's presence, or excuse me, the, the, the presence of the day of the Lord, these two clear indications of the presence of the day of the Lord had not appeared. They hadn't manifested themselves. He's not instructing them to look for these things. In fact, he's not even telling them that they will ever see these things. He's just reminding them of the impossibility that they would be in the day of the Lord because these things had not yet happened. And this is his validation that the day of the Lord hadn't arrived. Now, he begins with what he calls the rebellion or the apostasy, literally in the Greek, apostasia. We already know from Paul's other letters that this is going to be a phenomenon that happens increasingly as time passes. We read in First Thessalonians, or excuse me, First Timothy chapter four, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Or in 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy that in the last days, there will be difficult times with people having the appearance of godliness, but, not, but denying his power. So we read this over and over again, not only there, but in Jude and in 2 Peter, we read about the coming days 
when there will be a general rise of unfaithfulness among those who call themselves Christians. But what Paul's talking about here is not that. In fact, this goes far beyond that. This is what amounts to a massive worldwide anti-God movement that might have its vestiges and might have its, its uh, preludes in, in the kind of general apostasy you see, but this is the great apostasy. In fact, Paul uses the definite article. It's not just an apostasy. This is the apostasy. The great final apostasy that surpasses all other apostasies. The rebellion that surpasses all other rebellions. This is a word, by the way, that was used in the Old Testament. Speaking about Israel's rebellion. Israel's hard-heartedness. Israel's apostasy. It's used that way in Hebrews 3.12 to talk about when Israel hardened their hearts in unbelief. But here Paul isn't referring to that so much as he's referring to a rebellion and an apostasy within the church and really describes what is the natural consequence of a of a church that is left with no Christians if indeed Paul has told them that at the return of Christ, they are promised relief. If indeed he's told them that at the return of Christ there would be a gathering of Christians to the Lord Jesus Christ, then what you have remaining is nothing other than an empty institution with imposters and counterfeits and pretenders. By this time in history, there will be probably worldwide representation of church institutions. There'll be enough people who associate themselves with the church that it will have a a definitive, visible presence even without true believers in it. But these believers who have gone to be with the Lord were the ones who had maintained some semblance of faithfulness, some semblance of truth, some semblance of sanctification. With them gone now, none of those things will stand. All of these counterfeits, all of these pretenders, all these imposters will very quickly, at the first whiff of difficulty, at the first, uh, at the first sign of unpopularity, all of them will quickly abandon their Christian roots. They'll abandon the God of the Bible to worship other things. That's how this whole thing begins. There's a massive, massive turning away from religion, or not so much religion, but from true religion, because because there's a, a replacement, and it kind of takes us to the second circumstance that Paul talks about, which makes things exponentially worse. Once this apostasy and this rebellion begin to happen... Paul talks about the appearing of the lawless one, the man of lawlessness. Or as he says, he's not re- uh, he doesn't appear, he's revealed. That's the word he uses. He uses it three times. It's very evident as you're reading through the text. This word for apoca- uh, apocalypsis, the, the, the word for revelation, same word that's used for the revelation of Jesus Christ when, when he appears is applied to this man. In verse 3, in verse 6, in verse 8, you see it over and over again, this idea that he is suddenly revealed. He's been lurking in mystery. He's been lurking in relative anonymity. And then suddenly, he is unveiled across the face of the earth. And all of this is going to happen in conjunction with this rebellion. Possibly as a result of it, when... This lawless man who hates God so much himself will seize the opportunity of so many people who are almost simultaneously turning away from God and he will present himself as the alternative to their outdated and outmoded religion. 
He's never really referred to as the Antichrist, though we, we understand him to be that. In fact, the Antichrist is a word that was only used by the Apostle John. Paul doesn't ever use it. It was coined by John, it seems like, near the end of the first century, after all the other apostles had died off. It was coined by him, and he uses it in his letters to talk about this individual, but it's clear by the common references to the book of Daniel, to the teaching of Christ, that they're all talking about the same person. And in the ways that Paul describes him here, it's obvious that he is very intentionally and very purposeful, purposely putting himself in competition or in parallel to Christ. He uses, for example, a word to describe the coming of this lawless, man, lawless one, and, and the word is parousia, the word that we always use to refer to the coming of Christ. He speaks about this man, as I said, having a revelation, being revealed, just like Christ will be revealed from the heavens. He's revealed. Each one of them have a message. Paul mentions it down in verse 10. In the case of Christ, it is the truth. In the case of the Antichrist, verse 11, it's the lie. They both have miracles. The Antichrist has his false miracles that he points to to validate him just as Christ's true miracles validated him. They both have an expectation of being worshipped. This, however, isn't anyone who's worthy of worship. It's an imitation who's foisted on the world and on the earth by Satan, intentionally put there to compete for prominence, for adoration, for worship with Christ. He's the exact opposite, though. He is the Antichrist. He's the complete opposite of Christ in character and in deeds and in motives. But all of this, I think, just highlights that what Paul's talking about here very clearly is a specific individual. People have read this through the years, and because of their presuppositions theologically, their systems of theology that they bring to the text. They read this and, and it doesn't fit because, as I said, they don't have a category to understand uh, a time frame at the end of the age. They don't have a, a series of years for anything like this to really happen. And so they read about this, this person and they think about it as not a person but an impersonal force. Paul, very clear, particularly as you go down to verse 7 and in verse 8, he speaks about a mystery of lawlessness, an impersonal force there. But then in verse 8, very clearly contrast him to the lawless one, the lawless man, who is currently hidden until the beginning of the day of the Lord when Christ comes to gather His elect to Himself and at that point He will be revealed. Now Paul piles on, for whatever reason, in verses 3 and 4, he piles on descriptions of this person here. He describes him in four different ways. First of all, he calls him the man of lawlessness, the lawless man, the antinomian man. He isn't necessarily an anarchist. He's not necessarily a rebel against governments. As a matter of fact, he will probably use the government in his own purposes for his own rebellion. But what he's opposed to is the law of God. He lives his life without any regard for God's law, for God's word, for God's will. He does whatever he pleases. That's what Daniel says about him in Daniel chapter 7. He is his own rule. In many ways, he's the ultimate manifestation of every unbeliever. Every person who lives their life as if God doesn't exist, or they might, uh, from time to time, when it's convenient for them, appeal to the Word of God, but in their day-to-day life, they live lawlessly. They live as if God's law wasn't really a factor for them. They live and they make up all of their own rules for their own self. Well, this is that man 
that lawless man taken to the most extreme state. He lives with absolute abandonment to the flesh and to his own sinful desires. He is full of all kinds of corruption. He will, no doubt, because of his prominence on the world stage, he will, no doubt, have a level of sophistication and rhetoric, and and he'll have a public presentation which uh, maybe has some level of decorum, but behind the scenes, he is corrupt to the core. He is a lawless, lawless man. There have been throughout all the ages so many haters of God, so many hypocrites, so many godless people, but he will surpass them all. He'll reject the law of God, reject the will of God. He'll be the ultimate man of wickedness. Now, there are many who have preceded him. John speaks about them. He says there are many antichrists who have gone out into the world, but this is the ultimate manifestation. I think the reason why there are so many antichrists is because Satan doesn't know when Christ will return. He doesn't know when the opportunity will happen for him to foist this person onto the world stage. And so, He has to always be grooming this kind of person because this kind of wickedness doesn't happen overnight. The kind of searing of a man's conscience to get to this point doesn't happen overnight. This is a lifelong pathway of of putrid corruption until he reaches the point where he has no more conscience, he has no more sensitivity. He is one of the most selfish and insolent and hateful and perverted people who ever existed. Depraved. He's learned corruption and deception. He's destroyed people's lives all along the way, creating a wake of devastation behind him. It's really not hard to imagine this kind of man because we've seen already through history in smaller ways, we've seen these kinds of leaders rise up. We watch with amazement of their power and influence. I remember reading, before I went to China, reading on Mao Zedong. I mean, I'd grown up hearing stories of wicked rulers and, and uh, hearing about Hitler or or Mussolini, but I knew very little about Mao Zedong, a man who in a short generation rose up and seized hold of really the minds of one-fifth of the world's population in China. One-fifth of the world's population overtook them, overthrew all, all, all sort of... Uh, symbolic, all the traditional institutions overthrew all of that, all of their temples, all of their, their understandings of education. He up, up ended the whole idea of the family. And then he replaced all of it with a little red book, basically sayings of Mao Zedong. And people marched through the streets chanting the sayings of Mao Zedong. They studied them like you would study the scripture. And all behind the scenes, he was a wicked and vile man, murdering, plundering, raping, defiling. Hard to imagine that anyone who ever got close to him could ever follow him, and yet they were loyal to the point of death. We've seen these kinds of men. In the smallest kinds of ways, Satan grooming them and preparing them, never knowing when the time might come when they wouldn't rule over not just a fifth of the world's population, but the entire world. And somehow, some way, people follow them. People follow them. Well, Paul says, as the day begins to unfold, the day of the Lord, this man is revealed. He's revealed, he's He's already alive somewhere on the face of the earth at that time. But now with this massive worldwide apostasy, he's thrust into the spotlight. He un, 
veils, or he is unveiled, I should say, by Satan as the full and final Antichrist, who is opposed to the law of God, who lives to gratify every desire of his flesh and mind, who lives the most perverse kind of life that you could think of. Arrogant, self-consumed, destructive. In fact, Paul calls him, secondly there, calls him the son of destruction, which is a Hebrew idiom. We, they, the, the, the Hebrews would speak of someone as a son of something, and normally some sort of impersonal idea, like a son of obedience or son of disobedience. But here he's called the son of destruction, perhaps because it was his nature to destroy. He destroyed everything around him and others around him. That certainly was true. But probably what Paul is saying here is that his nature is destined to be destroyed. And the reason I say that is because the word is used in one other place in Scripture to refer to Judas. When Jesus in John 17 is praying to the Father, he refers to Judas as the son of destruction. And he puts him in contrast to all the other apostles whom Jesus said he had guarded and he had kept except for the son of destruction, the one who is destined for destruction. Well, Paul's probably calling this man the son of destruction for the same reason. That is, his, that is who he is classed with. That's his classification. One of those people who is set for destruction. And he's doing that as an ultimate reminder to these Thessalonians that no matter how wicked this man is and no matter how powerful he is, his fate is sealed. God will destroy him. He belongs to destruction. He belongs to hell. He belongs to punishment. He belongs to judgment. He's a son of destruction. Thirdly, Paul describes him as the one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. And the object uh, that he opposes here is anything called God. It's not just the God of the Bible. It is all religion. He will tolerate no rivals to his own power and his own glory. And so he launches an anti-God campaign, opposing every traditional religious expression known to man, not to completely abolish religion, but, as Paul says, to set himself up as the alternative, the object of worship. He seeks to replace all these religions with the worship of himself. He probably forms like Zedong, Mao Zedong did. He probably forms a, a following and, and codifies his own sayings and people begin to worship him as some sort of infallible oracle. When you read about the Antichrist in other places of Scripture, Revelation 13, for example, pictures him as a beast. He's wearing all these crowns and having all these horns, ten horns, all of this representing his worldwide power and influence. John says in Revelation 13, he was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Those three Uh, very distinct images, the leopard, the bear, and the lion were straight out of Daniel chapter 7 where he lists Babylon as a lion, Medo-Persia as a bear, and the Greek empire as a leopard. Super clear allusion to the book of Daniel as he's speaking about this beast, this antichrist, being a kind of composite of all the great world empires. And then John writes in Revelation 13, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but the mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So eventually he rises up to this position of worldwide power and influence and people begin to adore him as if he is in 
infallible, undefeatable, and unwittingly they are giving worship to the devil as they're worshiping this beast who has been given authority by the devil. So this is the man of lawlessness. He puts himself in opposition to every other form of religion, so he sets himself up for this kind of worship. And then fourth, in verse 4, Paul says he does all this so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is his ultimate purpose in all of this. He wants to be seen as God. He wants to be worshipped as God. He wants to proclaim himself as God. He wants to dethrone God so that he can be enthroned. It's not surprising. These are words straight out of the book of Ezekiel when Satan himself wanted that kind of position. He wanted to ascend to heaven and take the throne of God before he was cast down. In fact, uh, in, in the book of Ezekiel, those words, which are really expressions of the heart of Satan, are coming through the mouth of the king of Tyre. And so it's not uncommon, in other words, for Satan or satanically inspired leaders to have this kind of arrogance and, and uh, self-love to want to put themselves in that kind of a position. But this one is the ultimate one. And his, one of his means of doing all this, Paul says, is that he seats himself in the naos, the temple of God. Literally, it's just a word for temple. It can mean temple of, of pagan gods. It can mean even, in some cases, the temple of our bodies, which Paul says is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our individual bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But Paul's not referring to any of that here. He's not talking about pagan temples. He's not talking about the temple of God's plural. And he's not talking about our individual bodies. He doesn't, he doesn't take up a, a seat, if you will, in the hearts of true believers. He's talking about a very specific temple. He doesn't set himself up in just any temple. He sets himself up in the temple of God, which can only mean the temple in Jerusalem. There are a lot of people who struggle with this. They recognize currently there is no temple in Jerusalem. They, the location of the temple, uh, the traditional temple, the location where God commanded the temple to be built is presently the location of an Islamic site known as the Dome of the Rock. And Israel while they long to rebuild the temple, would never build the temple anywhere else. And so they see an impossibility here. The original temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians and replaced by Herod in A.D. 70, excuse me, excuse me, was replaced by Herod, was destroyed in A.D. 70. And now for 2,000 years, there has been no temple. And so people have struggled with what Paul is saying here. Obviously, liberals who read this, believe that it's simply an error, an instance of fallibility within the Scripture, that this is an impossibility. There's no one who could seat themselves in the temple because since the temple no longer exists. Others who recognize that there's no temple have tried to come up with some sort of metaphorical meaning here that would replace the clear statement about the temple. But really the question is not... How can we come up with some notion of what might be conceived of as a temple? The real question is, what would the Thessalonians, what would Paul have understood by this phrase? Because this is the meaning of the text. What Paul meant it to mean is the meaning of the text. He is the inspired writer, not us, not you, not the interpreter. And what Paul would have clearly meant, what the Thessalonians would have clearly understood by this phrase is nothing other than the temple that was standing in Jerusalem. The temple that was torn down eventually, but will be replaced. A temple that doesn't currently exist, 
but in God's providence will be, will be rebuilt in some fashion. This isn't metaphorical language that would demand a context, or I should say a context is what normally determines metaphorical language. You find metaphorical language in things like parables and poetic sections and those kinds of things, but nothing in this section would indicate to us or to the original readers that Paul has somehow drifted into imagery. This is a straightforward explanation from the Apostle Paul of the events that are to come. There's no reason to believe that Paul was somehow trying to pull the wool over their eyes or obscure for them what he was talking about. It may be difficult for us to see how a temple would be rebuilt right now in our own time, but it was difficult for people 100 years ago to see how Israel would ever come back into existence, but they did in 1940, 1947. All of this which, which obviously points to a future time, a future time. There are those, of course, who read this and immediately jump to the conclusion that because this is the prophecy, this must have happened uh, in the first century when the temple was still around. There must have been some sort, of, some sort of person who went into the temple and desecrated the temple and tried to set himself up as an object of worship. But all of that, of course, goes directly against what Paul is trying to say here. He's clearly telling us that these would be the indicators that the day of the Lord had arrived, that the end of the age had arrived. And that certainly didn't happen. The return of Christ didn't happen in the first century. Now, this is not the first time that the temple of God would have been desecrated. It had already happened, 167, 168 B.C., a Seleucid Assyrian ruler named Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, as he's known sometimes. He entered into the temple. He entered into the Holy of Holies. He had his men set up an altar to the god Zeus. He burned on that altar. He sacrificed a pig on the altar as a way of thumbing his nose at the laws of 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 desecration for Israel. And he became known not only in Christian circles, but in Jewish circles as the abomination that desolates or the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Antiochus Epiphanes was easily recognized by Daniel, that king who is represented as a little horn in Daniel Chapter 7, Daniel chapter 11. And he comes in and he desecrates the temple. But we come to understand that even that was not the final manifestation. Because in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus picks up the prophecy of Daniel. Speaking not about things which have happened in the past, but about that which is to come. And he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. Then let those who are in in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus evidently clearly understood Daniel's prophecy as something that had yet to be completely fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes. And as I said, it wasn't fulfilled in any Roman ruler, any man who would have come and destroyed the temple in the first century. None of that is something that still awaits the future. And this is where you see the prophecies of Daniel become very helpful for us to get the fuller context of what's going on here. Daniel 7, 8, as I said, pictures this this man who opposes God and opposes Christ. He He's a little horn who rises up out of obscurity to a place of prominence. Daniel says 
He has eyes like the eyes of a man, talking about his his uh, insight and his intelligence. He has a mouth uttering great boasts, talking about his arrogant pride. Later, in Daniel chapter 11, he's called the king of the north who invades the south and violates the temple fortress, abolishing the daily sacrifice and setting up the abomination that causes desolation. Daniel eleven thirty six says he's the king who does as he pleases, meaning that he has no regard for the will of God. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of God. That's clearly the passage from which Paul himself is borrowing in 2 Thessalonians 2. Setting himself up against every God. Back in Daniel 7.23, says his kingdom will be different from all other kingdoms. He will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. In 7.25, he depicts him as a blasphemer who speaks against the Most High God. He will, he says, make alterations in times and in law, replacing all of the world's religious ceremonies and observances, replacing even their legal structures with his own, replacing, it seems, even their calendar. Getting rid of anything that would point back to Christ. Daniel 7.25 also says that his reign will be limited, limited to a time, times, and half a time, which obviously is a three and a half year period, a three and a half year era during the tribulation. Revelation speaks about it in the same language several times, sometimes referring to it as simply a 42 month period. All of this is when his rebellion reaches its peak. It reaches its peak halfway through the tribulation. He begins this tribulation rising to prominence, making a peace treaty with Israel, finding and capturing the imagination of the world and all of its followers, systematically obliterating their religion, replacing their laws, massacring people all along the way. Any of those who during the tribulation come to believe in Christ, he massacres them. He massacres the Jews, wiping out anyone who would have any reference back to the God of the Bible. And halfway through this period of time, Daniel tells us, he makes a treaty with Israel. And at that point, he enters into the temple and desecrates it. Daniel 7.26, though, tells us, That after that, God's judgment comes against him and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Daniel 7, 27, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all his dominions shall serve and obey Him. That's really the ultimate end. That's the end, by the way, that Paul goes to in verse 8 when he brings up this lawless one and immediately reminds them that this is the one whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. In the meantime, he wants to assure these believers, you're not in the day. You're not intended to go through this. You're not in the day. You've been promised not this kind of persecution and not this kind of grief. You've been promised relief when the Lord Jesus returns. The day of the Lord will work itself out across the whole face of the earth. God will bring judgment against all those who have turned against Him. Paul says in verse 5, Remember, I taught you all these things. He taught them this, this young church, this three-month-old church, he taught them these things. These were important for them to understand, important because they needed a, a reference point. As they saw all of the culture and all the world around them sliding down into decay, they saw the persecution arising, they needed a reference point. They needed to know that, yes, things are going to get bad, they will get really bad. They'll get worse than you might have 
ever imagined. Paul told them exactly how bad it was going to get, but he also told them that in the end, Christ is the victor. Everything and everyone, no matter how strong they are, strengthened even with the might of Satan, every one of them is to be thwarted. Every one of them is to be overthrown. That's the hope. The hope that they had, the hope that we have, the comfort that we have, that this world is really destined for destruction. That this world that turns away from God and turns away from His Word that lives in its lawless ways will not ultimately stand in the day of judgment. They too will face the same judgment that this Antichrist will face. Every person who is lawless like him will face the same end. The end that that Paul talked about back in chapter 1, verse 6, God, who in His righteous judgment intends to repay with affliction, those who have afflicted us. In flaming fire, he says in verse 8, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Listen, we take comfort in those things, but if you're here today and you don't know Christ and you don't know God, if you are a pretender, like the lawless one. You are your own God. You don't really have any regard for the laws of God. We're here not only rejoicing in what is to come, but also pleading with anyone, anyone who will listen, that salvation is of Christ. That judgment's coming, but God has sent His Son into the world that we might be saved. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, we would love to be able to share with you how you can know Him. And if you are available and are interested, I hope that after the service is over, you'd find me. I'll be in the Welcome Center. You'd find one of our elders, one of our Sunday school teachers, any of us. We would love to take the opportunity to talk to you and share with you from the Scripture exactly how your sins can be forgiven. You can be reconciled to God. You can be saved. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we don't understand all of your purposes at all times. We look around us. We see the corruption and decay of the world around us. It grieves our heart. We don't know why you have chosen to show us all of these things which are to come, to show us exactly how bad the world will get. But we are grateful to know that no matter what, in our own time or in the times to come, Satan and evil will not prevail. For you have redeemed not only us, but you are redeeming this world. You'll bring it back under your authority and submission to you. Lord, that's our great desire. Our great desire is to see Christ, that our battle with sin would be brought to an end and that the rebellion against you would finally cease. And to that end, Lord, we look with hope, with anticipation, and we say, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, that your name might be exalted throughout all the earth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.